This is an ABC podcast. Today on Conversations, we're bringing you the life of a death machine. In the city of Ipswich, just west of Brisbane, there's this railway museum. And inside the museum is an old German tank. Its name is Mephisto. It's nearly 100 years old. And it's the only German tank from World War I that's still in existence anywhere in the world. And it lives right here in Australia. For decades, Mephisto was kept outside in the rain. Kids used to climb all over it. Not too many people gave it that much thought. Not that many people are even aware that tanks actually existed back in the First World War. To look at it, Mephisto is a greeny-black steel-plated behemoth with guns protruding out of its armour. It looks like a battleship on caterpillar tracks. It could even be said to be beautiful in its own way. At least I think so. But to the Australian soldiers in the trenches who saw Mephisto coming out of the smoke for them, it must have looked like a perfect nightmare. German soldiers actually had a name for this fear inspired by the tank. They called it Panzerschreck, tank terror. In today's program, you'll hear the story of this tank, Mephisto, and you'll find out how it was stolen by Australian soldiers right under the noses of the Germans and how it ended up here on the other side of the world. One of the things I love about looking at um, older tanks, because I do love tanks, is the knowledge that the things that I'm doing right now in preparing to climb inside would have been done in exactly the same way by a young German soldier back in 1918. That voice you're hearing right there is John Cantwell. John's a retired Major General in the Australian Army. And I invited John to come with us when we went out to see Mephisto in its temporary home at the Railway Museum in Ipswich because John is the only guy I've ever met who's actually commanded an armoured vehicle in action in the First Gulf War back in 1991. So we got there and we saw this hulking green steel-plated machine sitting inside a protective plastic bubble. So the guys at the museum kindly led us inside the bubble. We climbed up and sat inside Mephisto, like a couple of kids. And I asked John to imagine what it would have been like for a young German soldier back in the day to be inside this tank, going into battle. He would have placed his hand on the lip of the door, his other hand on one of these handles, probably his boot up, his muddy boot up on one of the bolt heads, and then levered himself up inside. He would have been seeing, as I'm seeing now through the open hatch, that gun... That crank handle, the bolts on the inside armour, and it's only a space of years that separate us. That young man and all the things that he did and the fear he felt, the hopes he had he would survive. Did he survive? Who knows? It's a, it's a thing that I find fascinating um, and, and sad, but also enormously rewarding. You're the only person I've ever interviewed who's actually taken part in a modern tank battle. Now that you're sitting in a tank that's nearly 100 years old, can you try and put yourself in the mind of one of those soldiers who would have sat in this tank? Well, it would be in some ways similar to the sensation of being inside a modern tank. Even now? Even now. A tracked vehicle sitting inside an armoured box trying to make weapon systems work in a confined, crowded, dangerous and difficult place is all very familiar to any tank crewman. It even smells like most tanks that I've been inside. There's just this persistent smell of metal 
And although this engine hasn't run for years, it still smells like an engine. You can smell the oil, um, <laughs> and you could just imagine how how it would have stunk when it was at full running temperature, both these engines behind us here. The air would have been horrible from the engines. They would have been straining, so you would have had roaring engines and crashing gears. You would then have machine gun fire and cannon fire from outside before you even think about the noise from its own weapons. Nonetheless, this, this whole idea of an enclosed armoured box at that time was revolutionary. Mephisto had a huge crew, all crammed into a metal box the size of a small truck. And like John says, they shared this tiny space with two petrol engines that gave off incredible noise and fumes and heat. And for all that, these tanks could only move on battle terrain realistically at less than walking pace. So why did the British and the Germans build such a crude and outlandish machine? Well, the answer is that they were desperately hoping the tank would overcome the worst problem of the war. The stalemate of trench warfare in France and Belgium as well was possibly the biggest and cruelest trap that human beings have ever assembled for themselves. This is how the historian William Manchester describes it. The soldiers who crawled over their parapets, lay down in front of the jump-off tapes and waited for their officers' zero-hour whistles, faced as many as ten aprons of barbed wire, with barbs as thick as a man's thumb. A few trenches would be taken at shocking cost. One gain of 700 mutilated yards cost 26,000 men, and then the siege would start again. It was a weird, grimy life, unlike anything in their sheltered upbringings. Arriving draftees were marched over duckboards to their new homes in the earth, where everything revolved around the trench. You had a trench knife, a trench cane, a rod-shaped trench periscope, and if you were unlucky, trench foot, trench mouth, or trench fever. The survivors were those who developed quick reactions to danger. An alert youth learned to sort out the whines that threatened him, although... After a few close ones, when his ears buzzed and everything turned scarlet, he realised that the time might come when ducking would do no good. If he was a machine gunner, he knew his life expectancy in combat had been calculated at 30 minutes, and in time he became detached towards death and casual with its appliances. Grotesque, impersonal, obscene, ghastly. The war was, quite simply, the worst thing that ever happened. The scale of the Western Front, it's hard to grasp. I mean, from Switzerland right up to the North Sea, it's just this one huge, muddy, 
bogged down sea of barbed wire and carnage. That's Jeff Hopkins-Wise. Jeff's an historian and an honorary curator at the Queensland Museum, and he's written their publication on Mephisto because he just loves this story. Switzerland Mm -hmm. to the North Sea Mm -hmm. in Europe. No gains. You know, these armies are slugging it out, and we're looking at millions of casualties. So tanks were hoped to break this stalemate, something that you could get through the barbed wire, the, the mass machine guns and the artillery that just decimated that area between the trench and no man's land. I mean, every soldier who would have had to have gone over the top would have dreaded that, that distance of land between his trench and the enemy's trench because often you never got to the enemy's trench because of the machine gun fire, the rifle fire and the, the gas and the artillery barrages that just obliterated great swathes of France and Belgium. The position of soldiers in the trenches in the First World War was uniquely awful. So when I read about these stories in the past about the development of the tank, I find myself barracking for it as some kind of humane solution to the war. That's Is that crazy? <laughs> Do you think no, no, barracking think for the development I mean, of the tank? I mean, for, for a lot of officers, they've watched men just being mown down and being blown to pieces. I mean, if you could shorten the war, you would save lives. And lives on both sides. So creating what was hoped to be a weapon that could break this stalemate, I I think you're very, very right in many ways. You could say, go tank, go. Right at the start of the First World War, a group of middle-ranking British Army officers tried to persuade the war office to consider armoured vehicles, but they got nowhere. Then another group of Navy officers did manage to get the ear of the Royal Navy and of the First Lord of the Admiralty, a young Winston Churchill. So Churchill set up a land ships committee. The project was so secret, they needed a code name. I gave it the cover name Tank. It was like a water tank. That was meant to be so the Germans didn't realise what they were doing. But the name Tank is has stuck, and we call these tracked armoured vehicles tanks to this day. So what was the new technology that made a tank suddenly possible? The Holt Caterpillar tractor. They could see that the cross-country capability of a tracked vehicle could hopefully deal with the, this stalemate on, on the Western Front. Add a couple of armour plates, some offensive weapons, machine guns, and this was going to create this wonder weapon that was going to change everything. Oh, 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 it's a lovely war, a lovely war. Oh, oh, a oh, it's a shame to take the pain. As soon as Rebellion has gone, we feel just as heavy as lead. But we never get up to the task and bring the breakfast up to bed. And not long after that, they had their first prototype. It was a monster of a thing, with its two caterpillar tracks rolling around the whole perimeter of the tank. The armour was only half an inch thick, but it was enough to protect the men inside from enemy fire. The official motto of the British Tank Corps was, Fear naught. But as John Cantwell says, there were pluses and minuses to being inside the tank. Look, it is a wonderful thing to be inside armour. If uh, any of your listeners are veterans and have spent time under fire, they'll know how little protection is offered by an olive green shirt and a tin helmet. It's much better to have some armour plate around you. The problem, though, is you are the biggest, most obvious target on the battlefield. And infantrymen don't like being next to tanks on the ground because the tank draws the fire of every machine gun and every gunner out there. You do tend to draw the fire when you're in a tank. 
Jeff, did the British military embrace this new technology or did they revert to the same old, same old thing? Oh, this will be a toy. This will be a bit of junk. We have no interest in this. There was resistance on both sides because it hadn't been proven. So, yes, the resistance to it was strong, but other officers and even engineers, they persisted and they came up with the British tank, that that strange sort of lozenge-shaped thing with these sponsoons on the side. Well, now, tell me about these tanks. Tell me about the first tanks the British did deploy in, in 1916. What were these tanks like, Jeff? Well, extremely primitive. The one thing that all the tanks have is their mechanical unreliability. I mean, they broke down often. They overheated, and under battlefield conditions... They often didn't last very long in the field because you just had to constantly maintain them. Um, after one engagement, you'd literally have to strip things down and rebuild them and service them and, and all that. That's how primitive they were. The arrival in Britain of this new technology, the tank, generated a lot of interest among women. Pam O'Brien is my producer and she's got an account of the first woman to ride in a British tank. Hello, Pam. Hello, Richard. Where is this account taken from? Well, it's actually taken from a British ladies' journal from uh, World War One, from uh, Miss Helen McKee, who was the first woman to travel in a tank. Do we, do we know anything about Helen McKee? Well, it turns out she was an artist. She even, this was in later years, was the first woman to ever go inside Hitler's bunker. That was before World War II and drew sketches of the inner workings of Hitler's inner sanctum. So she was pretty well known. So what did she say in her account of... Can her, I read it to you? I'd love you to read it to me, please. I had the rather unique experience of riding in a tank. It was very thrilling. When I got in, the iron doors were banged to, and I hoisted myself onto some sort of box over the engines, and was instructed by one of the gunners to hold tight onto two small handles. These were the last words I heard, as at this moment the engine started. The whole machine throbbed, and the noise was deafening. We started on our way, and went considerably quicker than I had anticipated. Then we changed gear and began to climb a steep hill. The machine ground its way up, almost painfully it seemed, grunting and snorting, but pulling steadily all the time till it reached the top, where it paused as if to take breath. I just had a hurried glance round, when I was bumped down violently onto my box again as the tank, with a tremendous rattling and jolting, rushed down the other side of the hill, during which time I had considerable difficulty in retaining my hold, having been jerked in all directions. A few more lurches and one more bump, and we pulled up finally. Apart from a few bruises and a generally rather dazed sensation, I felt no worse for my very interesting ride. In fact, I may say I thoroughly enjoyed it. The chief things that impressed me were the appalling noise, the violent jolting, the unpleasant fumes, and one can well imagine how awful it must have been in a tank under shell fire. I think Helen McKee is fantastic, Pam. She must have had a lot about her to get in that. I don't think I would have done it. Sounds horrific, to be honest. Did you notice the subtext to that account? I don't think it would have escaped many people's notice. And, and just from the little bit we've read about Helen McKee, I suspect it wasn't undeliberate, if there is such a word. Hey! 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 Hey!
This zone was a place apart, a separate region, a landscape of madness. But any anyway, one day we were in the wagon line quite a few hours and somebody came along and said, oh, the war's finished. Oh, well, just go down about half a mile down the road and look in the field there, you'll see. Won't tell us why. And here we went down and quite a crowd there. And there are tanks, things we'd never seen or heard of. One stared and stared, as if one had lost the power of one's limbs. The monsters approached, slowly, hobbling, rolling and swaying. But they approached. Nothing impeded them. A supernatural force seemed to impel them on. Someone in the trench said, the devil's coming. And the word was passed along the line like wildfire. Jeff, they look like a beast, don't they? They, 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 looked, they looked terrifying. If they didn't work very well, nonetheless, what kind of psychological effect oh, did the major. deployment of these tanks have? There's initial thing. I mean, for your average German soldier who's never seen anything like it, to have this enormous steel monster just slowly, methodically drawing towards you would have been absolutely terrifying. The Germans had a name for it too, didn't the, they? Yeah, the tank terror. Um, Panzerschreck. Panzerschreck. Psychologically, the tank at times could shatter a defence. And it did happen in 1916 when German troops really broke and ran because they didn't know what to do. And often they didn't have the weapons to counter this weapon either. It seemed that they were impervious to bullets and machine gun fire. But at times the Germans did stick their ground and, and like artillery units and stuff like that and often devastated British tank assaults and French tank assaults. And some of the French tanks, if they took hits, they burst into flames because the French had one tank that the fuel tanks were initially in the front. What, and all the men inside would roast them? Oh, literally, a horrifying thing. So, Jeff, even though the German troops were freaked out by the presence of the tanks, the German high command didn't take them very seriously at all. Well, 1916 didn't fill the Germans with any real sort of thought that the tank was truly a weapon we need to be concerned about. Very, very limited gains, and most of the time they were bogged, broke down or knocked out. It wasn't until the Battle of Cambrai, late 1917, where a massed British tank assault in support of infantry and, and artillery and all that made initial massive inroads into the German line. At 6.20am on November the 20th, the machines of a new epoch rolled into battle. On a cold November morning, the end of 1917, 476 new tanks rolled onto the fields of Cambrai. Cambrai was perfect for a tank battle. The ground was dry and flat, and it hadn't been broken up by artillery. This is a British tank soldier remembering how he went into battle on that day. We got in, shut down our tanks, and away we went. It was all dead silent. There wasn't a word until we got to the enemy wire. It, it was uh, no answer from the Germans at all. And it was the first time in our lives uh, we saw the, the Hun being blown up all over the place, bits of thing going everywhere. Troops were frightfully pleased. No machine gun fires. We opened up our tanks and then we got into this belt of wire. It was quite terrifying uh, because it was about seven feet high, very, very thick wire, and was over 120 yards deep in places. And of course, if we'd have stopped in that or got uh, our tracks ripped off, uh, then we should have been for it. The tanks tore a hole through the German barbed wire and the Allies poured through the gap and they ran right over the German lines. In four hours, they advanced nearly four miles with astonishingly low casualties. 
And so after years of stalemate, years where millions of men had been pushed into machine gun fire and the barbed wire, the tanks had broken through. But the joy of this great victory was cut short. The Germans counterattacked, and they recovered all of the ground that they'd lost. But the tank had made its points. The German high command frantically accelerated its own tank program. Within months, they delivered the first German tank, the A7V. There were just 20 of them, and one of them was nicknamed Mephisto. They initially planned to do 100 of these A7Vs, but by this stage too, Germany's production capacity is really, really struggling. You know, the Allied blockade from materials is really pinching, and German tank production really still wasn't a priority. All they made in the end were 20 A7Vs, and some of the other chassis were turned into uh, cargo-carrying versions, which were probably very, very useful. Again, I'm looking at a picture of the A7V, Mephisto itself, and it's really in its own ugly way a very beautiful thing. What I'm looking at here is essentially an armour-plated box on top of two caterpillar tracks. Is that what I'm looking at essentially here? Exactly. You, you've you've uh, summed it up just the way I would have. All the technical grasp of detail there. <laughs> um, it, it literally, it is. It, with it, gun sticking out. With, with, yeah, with a gun sticking out. Um, there was no armoured floor, so mines and whatnot could have been quite dangerous to the vehicle You know, if the war had been prolonged and they made more numbers of them. But there is something about it, just the, the look of it. It's horrible, yet um, there's some sort of romantic ideal of you know the armoured warrior in a more modern sense. I understand that there are two types of tank in this case, male and female. How can there be male and female tanks here, Jeff? Because they've all got guns sticking out of them. Aren't yeah. they all male to some degree? The British and the Germans both created tanks that could either be totally machine gun armed, which got the designation female, or when they added an artillery piece, like with the A7V, you've got that central 57mm, that was a male and I think it has something to do with physiology. I'm not quite sure how they came up with it, but, yeah, the <laughs> so the, the you, big main gun delineated, right. I'm a boy, and if I've just got machine guns, I'm a girl. What was the deadlier, the male or the female? Uh, it depends on the situation. The machine gun armed ones were devastating against infantry in a, uh, close range and trenches. Having a main gun, or in the British case, their tanks sometimes had a gun on either side on sponsoons, was that you could take out strong points, bunkers, and take on, as was the case with the first tank versus tank engagement, where you could actually go, oh, there's someone firing at us over there and we can fire back. How many crew was it designed to hold? Uh, it, th- there's such varying figures for it, but it seems to be an average of something like 16 to 18 soldiers minimum. Up, 16 to 18? Up to 26 personnel would be inside an A7V. That includes the commander and driver who sat in the uh, that raised central area. Now, you've got six machine guns who would be each require a crew. The main gun, which each requires a crew, there'd be a mechanic. They often had runners who literally were the main source of communication between each vehicle or even probably internally within a vehicle of letting someone know, hey, Hans, can you fire over there? Because the... Sh- the noise and pandemonium within an armoured vehicle makes communications almost nil. They even experimented with radios now, but they just realised that you couldn't hear a radio. So if you're travelling in one of these tanks mm. in, in battle and it gets lost, which they very often did, mm. 
How would they then communicate with other tanks or, or troops out in the field to get information about where they were and what was going on? They did have some systems of flags, but again, if there's a lot of haze, fog and smoke from artillery fire, a flag, flag is almost <laughs> useless. They did trial pigeons, but again, the effectiveness is very limited. Pigeons? Yeah, the messenger pigeons. Yes, apparently cages of carrier pigeons were carried inside these tanks. I put this idea of pigeon-based tank communication to former tank commander John Cantwell. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, even on modern tanks, uh, sometimes you can't get radio communication and sometimes you don't want to use your radios because it gives your position away sometimes. But the poor old pigeon, it, I'm not sure how that would actually work. How would the pigeon know that home was this other tank? Um, but anyway, look, it just shows that uh, perhaps we've advanced more than we think. But if you're actually firing machine guns, the engines are running and the main gun's going, the inside would have been something almost akin to like a fireworks display in an enclosed area. The noise, the sparks, the flashes, the smokes, the fumes, it would have just been hellish. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So then, the Germans, of course, had to develop their own tank, the A7V. They only made 20, and one of them was called Mephisto. Jeff Hopkins-Wise is an historian and a special curator at the Queensland Museum. So, Jeff, how did Mephisto get its slightly creepy name? Mephisto wasn't originally Mephisto. It was purely Vehicle 506 in its first engagement. This crew had named this vehicle Mephisto, and, it's, um, and it really was only known as Mephisto in the Battle of villers Bretonneux. One was sort of called Cyclops, um, Barden, Barden 1, Barden 2, uh, Nixa. Uh, so like a bunch of teenagers customising a car that they've just bought. Basically, yes, yes. Souping it up and uh, adding your own sort of uh, paintwork. Sometimes it was uh, mythology. With Mephisto, it was based on Mephistopheles. So they would have been conscious of the story of Faust. Oh, yes, story. yeah. Faust was the German intellectual who decided, or the legend is that he sold his soul yeah. to the devil, to Mephistopheles yeah. for knowledge. Yeah. Happy hell! And that's the unmistakable tones of Richard Burton as Faust as he's dragged down to hell while Elizabeth Taylor laughs mockingly at him. And the last line he screams out there is, Ah, Mephistopheles, also known as Mephisto. Yeah, Faust sells his soul to uh, Mephistopheles. So the symbol on Mephisto was literally this devil with a British tank under his arm running away with it. Although a lot of people I speak to say, why has that guy got a surfboard under his arm? <laughs> it, lo it looks like a surfboard. And maybe yeah. because it's been in Queensland so long that the first sort of, uh, sort of thoughts that it's, it's the devil running away with a surfboard. But it's actually the, that lozenge shape represents the devil taking on a British tank. So it was their sort of bold statement of, we can take you on. Well, that may have been how the German soldiers felt, but Mephisto wasn't really designed to fight other tanks. None of the tanks were. 
Stephen Dando Collins is an author and historian. He's been on this program many times. His most recent book is a novel about the epic tank battles of World War I. It's called Tank Boys. The main concept of a tank was infantry support. So the tanks would go through and would go over the top of barbed wire, over the top of trenches, and pave the way for the foot soldiers. So it was never imagined that tanks would fight tanks. So the, the idea was it would open up a laneway, essentially, for the troops to funnel through? Exactly, yeah. So they were never intending to fight, fight each, each other. other. Yeah, but it, inevitably it must happen at some point. And so it happened at the Second Battle of villers bretonneux a small French town defended by British and Australian troops. And it was here that the world's first tank-versus-tank battle took place. But it took place almost by accident. So what happened when these British tanks finally did run into some of these German tanks? Well, there were three Mark IVs uh, British tanks. At this point, they're still unaware that there are German tanks in front of them. All they know is that the Germans were broken through between villers bretonneux and Cachy. So they're rolling forward through all this fog and... Smoke and gas and, and falling shells, falling shells over this lumpy sort of land and mm. barbed wire and dead bodies, dead bodies and shell craters galore. And then the smoke clears just enough in front of them. They see the lead A7V, the big German lead tank. So, what does that mean then when one tank confronts another tank? Is there a race to fire first then? Well, race is probably not a good word. This speed. No. Maximum speed is about six kilometres an hour. So this battle actually took place in slow motion and they're crawling around the, the battlefield after each other. The British tanks go forward and uh, decide to take on the German tanks. The German tanks are actually supporting a, an infantry attack and the infantry very quickly fall back and let the tanks fight it out. The German tanks, their armour was never pierced. It was so thick, whereas the British tanks' armour was not as thick. And also the German machine guns were using what were called K-rounds, which was armour-piercing machine gun bullets, which the British didn't have. So the, the Germans had better armour and better ordnance, yes. better, be, better artillery. Yes. What did that mean? Did that mean they quickly won an advantage over the British tanks? In theory, but they were pitifully slow, and also their track design was not good. So it's all very well to have better armour and better material, but you've still got to what, get in position, line up and fire. And the thing about the British tanks, they had two cannon plus machine guns, so technically they outgunned uh, the German tanks, but their big guns were on the sides, sticking out through little cupolas on the side of the tank with the tracks going around. And when, yeah, when we see it now, we think, what a stupid idea. Why didn't they do what the Germans didn't have one big gun in the front? And the reason the guns were on the side was because tanks were originally designed for infantry support. So the tank would go straddle a trench and these two big guns on the side could fire sideways down, up and down the trenches and rake the trenches, you see. So they were never designed to fight other, other vehicles. So for a while then, these British tanks and German tanks are kind of just, what, lumbering around? Lumbering around and manoeuvring. The German tanks just coming straight forward and these British tanks going crab-like, sideways, zigzagging. The two female tanks were very badly shot up and fled the battlefield, but again at, <laughs> at very slow speed, leaving Lieutenant Frank Mitchell's tank on its own to take on the three opposing German tanks. Lieutenant Frank Mitchell commanded one of the British Mark IV tanks. He had a crew of seven, but they'd all been gassed, 
and several of them were incapacitated and had to be left behind. The rest of his crew had to climb in and operate their tank with burning lungs and swollen eyes. Afterwards, Frank Mitchell wrote an account of the first tank-versus-tank battle, and so I asked former Major General John Cantwell to read from it. He hadn't read it before, and John was fascinated, again, by the similarities with the tank battles of today. The shell burst some distance beyond the leading enemy tank. No reply came. A second shot boomed out, landing just to the right, but again, no reply. Suddenly, against our steel wall, a hurricane of hail pattered and the interior was filled with myriads of sparks and flying splinters. Something rattled against the steel helmet of the driver sitting next to me, and my face was stung with minute fragments of steel. The crew flung themselves flat on the floor. The driver ducked his head. Above the roar of our engine could be heard the staccato rat-tat-tat-tat-tat of machine guns, and other furious jets of bullets sprayed our steel side, the splinters clanging viciously against the engine cover. The German tanks, the A7Vs, had sprayed their tank with a shower of bullets. So Mitchell got his tank beyond range, then they spun round and manoeuvred to get their left gunner on target for Nixer, the lead German tank. Owing to our gas casualties, the gunner was working single-handed and his right eye being too swollen with gas, he aimed with the left. We kept going up and down like a ship in a heaving sea, making accurate shooting difficult. Our own infantry were standing in their trenches, watching the duel with intense interest, like spectators in the pit of a theatre. Looking down on one occasion, I saw to my horror that we were going straight down into a trench full of men, huddled together, yelling at the tops of their voices to attract our attention. We turned swiftly, avoiding catastrophe by a second. Meanwhile, the gunners were struggling to get a fix on the German tank, so Frank Mitchell decided to take a risk. I took a risk and stopped the tank for a moment. The pause was justified. A carefully aimed shot hit the turret of the German tank, bringing it to a standstill. Another roar and yet another white puff at the front of the tank detonated a second hit. Peering with swollen eyes through his narrow slit, the elated gunner shouted words of triumph that were drowned by the roaring of the engine. Then once more, with great deliberation, he aimed and hit for the third time. Through a loophole, I saw the tank heel over to one side, and then a door opened, and out ran the crew. We had knocked the monster out. The crew jumped out and ran for it, the 18 crew. Five of them were cut down by machine gunners. The two German tanks behind suddenly go into reverse. They don't like this, the sight of what they've just seen, their comrades being shot down, so they, they back away. And then the battle continues when seven smaller British Whippet tanks rush onto the battlefield to take on the German infantry. What were these Whippet tanks? What's the, what does that mean? Like it's named after the, the small British hunting Like a guard. greyhound, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're only a crew of three and only armed with machine guns. But against infantry, again, an infantry support or an infantry attack weapon, they rush onto the battlefield and now take on the German stormtroopers and cut them to pieces, killed an estimated 400 with their machine guns. But then one German tank comes onto the uh, the battlefield and it's named Siegfried. Its commander's got a bit more uh, a bottle than his, uh, some of his comrades and he comes into the battle and he very quickly knocks out four whippets and sends the other three 
retreating, full of bullets and shell holes. So we're back with Frank Mitchell and his Mark IV, who decides to, to take on Siegfried. And the British tank, one of its tracks is, is blown off, and it's disabled, so the same thing has to happen now. They have to bail out. So the British crew bail out and dive into a trench. So their tank has been technically knocked out. But then the the German tank, Siegfried, retreats. It's been on the battlefield for six hours. It's out of fuel. It's out of ammunition. So its commander decides to uh, withdraw and come back later, which he does. So technically, because the Germans didn't break through at that point, and the whole point of their advance was to allow the infantry to break through the British defences. Technically, the British won the battle, even though they lost five tanks to, to the Germans' one. But in reality, if you see it as tank versus tank, it's a stalemate, I suppose. Absolute stalemate, yeah. And, and it now starts both sides, particularly through the 20s and 30s, thinking about pitting tanks against tanks. It hadn't really been their intention before. It's the story of Mephisto in Conversations today. Mephisto's a German tank from World War I, the only one of its kind still in existence. It's nearly 100 years old now, and it lives here in Australia. So, Jeff, where's Mephisto when all this tank versus tank action it's, is it's happening? A, it's in a separate part of this battle. Mephisto is actually a part of the ones that are aiming to get monument wood. It's very effectively helped clear trench lines, take prisoners, clear strong points, but it's having mechanical problems. It breaks down at one point. I think it was a fuel line issue, but they get the vehicle running again. So someone has to get out and repair the tank? Well, you actually stay inside because everything's inside, but they do get the vehicle running again. So they're going towards the farmhouse when they fall into a shell hole and get immobilised. They can't get the vehicle out. Now, they're pretty big things. How could you drive a tank into a crater. How could you make that kind of mistake? Well, I, I suspect they didn't see it. Again, there's the visibility, there's a lot of smoke, haze. I think they may have been even trying to avoid it, and it's got near the edge, it's collapsed, the tanks slid in, and that was it. So the German tank crews are trained that in any situation where their vehicles are mobilised, they dismount, they have rifles, they have grenades, they can take some of the machine guns, and they are to support the infantry, and that's what they did. I think the intention was that the vehicle would have been recovered because it wasn't destroyed, it was just bogged. So once it's immobilised in this crater, mm. all the men get out and they, what, abandon ship, effectively? Abandoned ship, but it's not as if you're abandoning the vehicle because they didn't destroy the vehicle because the intention was, I believe, to recover it. So the crew basically support the infantry and they successfully participate and capture Monument Wood. But while the Germans are planning to tow Mephisto out of its crater, the Australian forces counterattack. The Australian counterattack was a huge victory to the Australians. The Australian advance is so successful. Australian troops from the 13th and 15th Brigade sweep past Monument Wood. Run over the top of Mephisto. Yeah, yeah. and just walk, walk past it. And some troops were assigned to sort of keep an eye on it and make sure it didn't fall into, into German hands. But for whatever reason, the 13th Brigade was told, pull back. And they had to pull back a mile. So did that put Mephisto essentially in no man's it land? It then became no man's land. So Mephisto sat where it was from April right through to July of 1918. And during that time, it appears that the Germans and probably also the Allies used it at times as an observation point, a strong point, because it is sort of like an armoured pillbox out in the middle of nowhere, so you could get into it. At this time, the Australians are doing a lot of small-scale assaults. They're straightening the line, they're taking points, because they're getting ready for a big offensive in August. 
And part of the thing was to retake Monument Wood and the area around it. And the 26th Battalion do this. So they're effectively in small detachments, working their way around, clearing Germans out of trenches and strong points. And on the 14th of July, they get to where Mephisto is on the battlefield. Small elements of the 26th just managed to get ahead of it. So technically is in the Australian, 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 lines. Australian lines. So it's behind the Australian lines. But it's lines. still very vulnerable. But basically they create a situation where the lines take in where Mephisto is. The 26th Battalion comes in and the Commander Major Rox Robinson had quite a reputation for, for brazen acts and he takes it upon himself. Men, we're going to get that tank. So Rox Robinson looks at Mephisto and goes, I want that for Australia. Exactly. We captured it in the first place. It was our troops that overran that area in the first place. It's ours. Now, by this stage, there's actually an Australian Army, you know, AIF unit, a trophy unit. Its job is to collect trophies, and that's why so many street corners in country towns around Australia today you see German crop guns and so on. It was this unit's job to go and get those off the Germans and, and ship them back to Australia. But this idea of just seizing Mephisto as a war trophy is, on the face of it, an insanely dangerous idea. Any soldiers trying to creep up on it would be easily seen by the Germans and well within range of their guns. And even if soldiers could get close to Mephisto, well, what then? How would they get a preposterously heavy steel tank out of a crater? Well, Major Robinson hatches a cunning plan. He borrows a couple of British carrier tanks, tanks with big winches on them, and then he sets up a distraction. So over several nights, working parties of the battalion fill in shell holes, clear paths to create an avenue where the British tank will bring in some of these gun carrier tanks and they can drag it out. There's going to be a coordination. They're going to maintain a light artillery barrage on German lines on the night, get aircraft to overfly to create noise to, to mask the British tanks that are coming up. And it's a brilliant operation to steal the German tank. It's, it's great. It's it? a heist. It's a heist. And on the evening of the 22nd and 23rd of July, they go out and they grease up all the tracks to mask any noise. They end up only using one of these gun carrier tanks to drag it. It comes free quite easily. But on this night, the Germans decide to do a gas artillery barrage of the, of the whole area. So all those who are involved in this operation to pull Mephisto back behind the lines were all gassed, and some of them quite badly. So they roll this British tank up close to the edge of the crater. And they grease, grease up everything on probably the British tank, the cables, Mephisto, hook it all up, and they drag it. It comes free, and they literally drag it off and hide it in monument wood initially, and then it keeps getting taken back into rear areas. Keep the home fires burning While your hearts are yearning Though your lads are far away They dream of home There's a silver lining Through the dark cloud shining Turn the dark cloud inside out Till the boys come home
So what's to happen to Mephisto now, now that it's in Australian hands? Well, here's Stephen Dando Collins again. Well, the British High Command uh, said, oh, jolly good, we'll take that back to the Imperial War Museum in London. And the Australian commanders, including General Monash, said, oh, no, you won't. And Prime Minister Billy Hughes said, oh, no, you won't. We're taking it back to Australia. They'd already had plans for a, what became the Australian War Memorial, down the track. So they were intending that it would go there with all these other numerous German trophies. And it's at this moment, in a classic moment of Queensland chauvinism, the Labor Premier of Queensland, TJ Ryan, steps into the picture and says, I don't think so. I think it was 3rd of August 1918, Queensland Premier TJ Ryan heard that Queenslanders had captured this and immediately cables Imperial authorities wanting this tank brought to Queensland as a war trophy. So when it's put on a ship, it seems to be diverted to Brisbane where it's unloaded. Now, I always wonder if a Labor Premier was able to get the wharfies to, to do something um, to ensure that it's unloaded. Life is great in the sunshine state. Every Queensland heart sings a song. To its tablelands and its golden sand, we are proud to say we belong. And our faith is great in the sun. It sat on the wharf on the Brisbane River for a couple of months before to Brisbane City Council traction engine dragged it up to the old museum site up at Gregory Terrace. I used to have an aunt who just lived down the hill from the old museum site and I spent a lot of time with my aunt. But often, Auntie Murray, I'm just going up to the old museum. It was such a treat to wander up and this big grey object is sitting in the gardens, in the, in the shed. So it was always fascinating me, what was this thing? Because as a small boy, you know, you're fascinated with tanks and planes and all that sort of thing, but to actually see this really weird object... It drew me in at a very young age, and I probably climbed a small barrier fence a few times. Later on, early 2004, I had a paid role at the Queensland Museum, and literally on my first day, I was asked to go see someone in the Inquiry Centre because they wanted to redo a guide about Mephisto, because Mephisto is actually one of the most requested objects for information and inquiry at the Queensland Museum. But on that day at the Inquiry Centre, I met this um, lovely lady who... Um, I don't know. It's one of those things that we end up marrying. Oh, but she's your wife. This is my wife. So some people say, and my wife would say, our relationship is a three-way uh, relationship. <laughs> my wife, Mephisto, and I. In this case, Mephisto was transformed from a warfare device to an engine of love. An engine of love. That's exactly it. But Mephisto really did um, kickstart our relationship. You, you bonded over early modern tank warfare. That's right. That's a marvellous thing. I'm sure when my wife hears this, she will roll her eyes. <laughs> Knowingly. <laughs> I don't doubt it for a moment. <laughs> Mephisto sat outside the Queensland Museum for years under a kind of carport. It was exposed partially to the elements, and parts of Mephisto were broken off and stolen by members of the public. The Germans had only ever created 20 of these A7V tanks. Some of them were taken as war trophies by other countries and put on display in France and America. But after the war, public interest in the tanks waned, and all of them were either lost or junked or melted down for scrap metal. So Mephisto has survived in this far-flung place called Brisbane. Most people didn't even know it existed into more recent decades. The last surviving German the tank. The last surviving German tank of the of First World War I. In the 80s, Mephisto was put on display in far better protected conditions in the museum's new site in Brisbane's South Bank. But it was partially damaged by the Brisbane floods of 2011, and so it was sent to the Railway Museum in Ipswich to be carefully restored. And that's where Major General John Cantwell and I got to sit inside it. 
While we were there, I asked John Catwell what lessons were learned at the end of the war by the introduction of the tank. And who was it that learned those lessons? It was only at the end of the First World War where this technology had been devised and the Commonwealth forces, particularly the Australians under John Monash, devised a combination of tanks and artillery and air power and manoeuvre that really started to break this down. It was a real breakthrough and the tank was vital. What you're describing there, that mix of tank, artillery, infantry and air power, Sounds a lot like Hitler's Blitzkrieg style of warfare. Did John Monash invent that ahead of the uh, German armed forces? Monash is uh, regarded now and at the time was regarded as perhaps the greatest general in the Commonwealth forces in the uh, First World War because he had this foresight. Extraordinarily, though, having invented the tank and participated in this breakthrough style of warfare, the British then promptly forgot all about it and reverted back to cavalry, horse-drawn forces, and it was left to the Germans, who copied this idea of the tank from the British, to really develop the idea of the tank, and they remembered the things that Monash had taught them. The Germans got it, and they used it as we saw so well in the late 30s and 40s. This is the same strategy that Hitler's forces used to completely overrun Poland, then completely overrun France. Yes, and it's all our fault. It's all our fault. Yes. It's kind of a mind-blowing thought, isn't it, that one of the cleverest things we ever did in the war was used for such dark purposes Yes, later. yes, yeah. Keep the home fires burning While your hearts are yearning Though your lads are far away Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Today's episode of Conversations was one of those selected by you, listeners, as one that you wanted to hear again. We first recorded this program in 2014. Enormous thanks to John Cantwell, to Jeff Hopkins-Wise, and to Stephen and Louise Dando-Collins. And many thanks, too, to Michael Westaway for first telling us all about Mephisto, and to the Workshops Rail Museum in Ipswich and the Queensland Museum for their help and support. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler for more conversations interviews please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app